From Washington, this is the CQ Budget Podcast, your leading Capitol Hill source on how Congress allocates federal taxpayer dollars. And welcome back to the CQ Budget Podcast. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker. And there's a big debt limit deal, finally, is what we're going to talk about today. Uh, Miracle of miracles. They actually reached one over this long uh, Memorial Day weekend. After months of false starts, there is a deal bipartisan between the president and the House Speaker we want to sort of explain what that is, what it means. It's it's a lot more complex than people may realize. We can talk about that too. And the process now, this will be an intense week on Capitol Hill as both chambers try to get it passed, which will also be a rocky road with, with probably a good deal of drama. We can talk about that. Joining me for all of that are two of my regular guests, Paul Krawczak, a senior budget writer at CQ Roll Call. Welcome back, Paul. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, David. And Aiden Quigley, the appropriations reporter at CQ Roll Call. Thanks again, Aiden. Thanks for having me. So here we are. It is Tuesday as we as we tape in this weird partial recess, kind of back in town now after the long weekend, and they emerged with this debt limit deal. It does suspend the debt limit past the elections next year into January 1st of 2025. We're just going to live without a debt limit until then. It's the easy way of doing it without actually increasing the debt by a dollar amount that politicians hate to vote for. So the biggest and most important thing about this bill is it gets that done and the Treasury can keep borrowing money that it needs to pay bills. We should always keep in mind that's what's crucial about this bill. The rest of it is kind of a lot of complex window dressing that Republicans insisted on to to avoid just just a straight debt limit increase. But they put in these two years of caps on discretionary spending, sort of. They did and the pause on student loan repayments is something they wanted. They did claw back unspent pandemic aid, which Republicans wanted. They clawed back a little uh, IRS money that was designed for tax enforcement to crack down on tax cheats that Republicans hated. They said it's just going to create an army of auditors. So they were insistent on that. And some tougher work requirements, kind of on two key programs, food stamps and the basic cash assistance program for low-income families, temporary assistance for needy families, it's called. Both already had work requirements, They, but they tinkered with them, made some a little tougher, but also made some exemptions at the behest of Democrats for veterans and homeless people. So maybe kind of a wash there, not a big cost savings in any event. Democrats were spared any any new work requirements for Medicaid. That would have been a big deal. So all of these window dressing features that are attached to the bill now uh, that were needed to gain bipartisan support are in place if this thing can pass. We think it will pass both chambers after a lot of hemming and homming and high drama, but that's the week that we have ahead of us. But this deal is is a lot more complex than people may realize, I think, uh, Paul. And each party is going to spin it the way they want to try to win support for it among their rank and file members because it hinges on on sort of some side agreements that 
that aren't even in the bill, we should say, that was were designed to make this smoother for both parties to accept, kind of complex. And the basic the basic fight here is these caps on discretionary spending, how they're going to work, right? And the bill does provide for a slight increase in defense spending and for veterans, as Republicans wanted, basically in line with what President Biden had proposed. So those are going to increase slightly. The only alleged cut is on the non-defense side. And even there, we're, we're finding out kind of belatedly whether their actual cuts is in the eye of the beholder because they have these side agreements that might end up keeping non-defense spending roughly frozen in place, relatively flat. Paul, how does walk us through a little how that works, because that's kind of fascinating. Well, so the, um, the White House is saying that um, the 2024 non-defense number is basically um, a freeze. It's basically the same as the current year, 2023. And Republicans are saying it's uh, more than a $50 billion cut um, from current spending. And each side is able to say that with a straight face, even though the numbers are going to conflict. Right. And the I mean, the reason for the difference, the major reasons for the difference is so this bill would it would rescind or repeal uh, some of that uh, pandemic uh, relief that was passed in previous bills, um, I think uh, 28 billion of that would be repealed. But it, but it looks like most of that would be reshifted into discretionary spending in 2024 and 2025. So Republicans can say we are rescinding that uh, that unobligated pandemic aid, which we don't need. But that money is not going away entirely. It's going to be, most of that money is going to be plowed back into discretionary funding for 2024 and 2025. So that will make up some of this gap, right? That that would otherwise, right. instead of these non-defense programs getting cut, if they pump some of that unspent COVID money into there, then you're basically keeping funding level the COVID money and the some IRS money. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, 10 billion of IRS money is, is well, 20 billion in IRS money is being rescinded, but 10 billion of that will go back into 2024 budget. And then 10 billion will go into 2025 budget. Actually, actually that money is not actually formally rescinded. I don't think Paul, there's just sort of this informal side agreement to shift that money somehow to use it for, um, there's a, there's a very tiny rescission to the IRS of about 1.4 billion separately, uh, that, that just repeals that money. But, but then they're taking this, this other chunk of IRS money that the Democrats had approved last year. This was part of this $80 billion cash infusion for the IRS Democrats wanted to crack down on tax cheats. They said was going to, you know, actually give them a lot more revenue coming in. And Republicans said, no, it's just going to hurt the middle class with all these auditors coming at them. And so that there was that whole partisan fight over this IRS tax enforcement money. And we find out there's this side deal that that's going to shift some of that money. We think about $20 billion over two years 
that they can they can patch some of these cuts that they're making in non-defense programs. Kind of tricky. That's right. And then in addition to that, there are some other there are some other funds which are being repurposed in some way. Again, this is part of side agreements, which both sides have agreed to, which explains how Democrats can say we are really freezing spending, um, even though Republicans are saying we are cutting spending by more than $50 billion. Right, which is some clever, there's basically just some clever accounting maneuvers here going on. You know, what counts as, as, as emergency money? What counts as discretionary money? You can shift around some of those accounts and presto, there's money left to avoid deep cuts to to non-defense programs, which is what Democrats were insisting. They were they were not going to tolerate the deep Republican cuts that, you know, the, the deep cuts that Republicans sought. And so this is sort of a way to patch things over and allow both parties to claim some victory here. The question is whether it works. The big test starts today, as we tape, Aiden, because this has to get through the House first. The House is supposed to vote on this late Wednesday. Today, Tuesday, the House Rules Committee has that first critical test vote here. And what are the political dynamics at work here in the House? Who's for it? Who's against it? Can this get through the Rules Committee? How is this going to play out as you see it? That, that's a very uh, good question. Definitely one that we're focused on uh, this week. It's pretty clear that the House Freedom Caucus and their ideology, ideological allies on kind of the farthest right of the GOP conference are going to oppose this. You see folks like Chip Roy, uh, Andrew Clyde, you know, House Freedom Caucus stalwart saying that this is a bad deal, that they do not support. Uh, those folks voted for the uh, earlier deal, uh, earlier bill in the House, the Limit Save Grow Act, the Republican only uh, deal. But obviously, in bipartisan negotiations with the White House, what the deal we're looking at now is very different from the bill that the Republicans had initially passed. So McCarthy will lose some Republicans, meaning he will need Democrats on board. However, it looks like there will be enough Democrats to get this passed, depending on how many Republicans McCarthy loses. Uh, but there are, there's definitely some Democratic support lining up for this, including the New Democrats, who's, which is a more moderate group. They're in favor of this. So it's going to be interesting to see how exactly it plays out. But it does look like there's enough uh, folks in the middle of the House who will be able to back this and pave the way for this to pass the House tomorrow night. Of course, we're going to be keeping a close eye. And if McCarthy loses a lot of Republicans then they could run into some some issues because I do feel like this will have more Republicans than Democrats voting for it. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's a hardcore group of conservative Republicans from that Freedom Caucus that guarantees that there's a there's probably at least thirty to fifty of them in the in the House that Republicans that'll vote against this thing, right? Which means you do need a good chunk of Democrats, but of course. President Biden is backing this bill, and and most Democrats want to avoid a default. Um, so there's reason to think that that maybe even most Democrats support this. I don't know about most, but at least at least a good chunk of them, I would say. I, I did note over the weekend that the House progressives, 
are probably the most upset about this package. And they're about a hundred, there's about a hundred House Democrats who are in the progressive caucus on the far left side. And of course, their main their main concern, I think, is these work requirements that they hate for for food stamps and and uh, cash assistance that they say is just going to hurt a lot of people and um, you know throw a lot of people off of those programs who really do need the help. You know, they they say it's not really going to boost employment and it's just going to be cruel. Um, and so they're upset about that. And of course, this also streamlines these the permitting process from energy projects that some progressives don't like. Right. Um, you know, that they say might run roughshod over environmental protections. So there's reasons here for the left wing of the Democratic Party to oppose this. The question is, how many of them are there who want to buck the president um, and vote no? But even if even if most of the progressives vote no, seems to me that still gives them enough votes to get it past the House, right? I think that's a pretty fair assessment. I am interested to see how, you know, if if a majority of Democrats will actually end up supporting this. It does, these caps are, you know, a freeze on spending for essentially two years, 1% growth next year. That's likely to be under the rate of inflation. To me, from an appropriations angle, this looks like a pretty good deal for Republicans when it, if you take a step back and consider that Democrats have the Senate and the White House, obviously Democrats will say that you know, the, the talking point from the Senate Dems, at least so far, has been that, you know, the extreme MAGA Republicans were pushing for uh, so much more and look at we kept them to this meager uh, accomplishment for, for their side of the aisle. But I think if you take a step back, the essential appropriations freeze for two years when Republicans just have such a tiny majority in the House is is a really good uh deal for the Republicans when it comes to appropriations. Yeah, that's a good point you make about inflation, Aiden, because we talk about how how this basically keeps non-defense funding flat if you account for all these crazy, you know, weird adjustments, <laughs> but flat only until you account for inflation. When you account for inflation, there are real cuts required here just to keep the funding, the nominal dollar level flat still requires some cuts after you adjust for inflation. And even on the defense side, right, they're talking about a roughly 3% increase for defense here. But even that may not keep up with inflation. So even that sort of trims defense a little bit back, which was enough to trigger some outrage we saw over the weekend from Lindsey Graham, a senior appropriator in the Senate from South Carolina, conservative, who said? Who sort of protested this bill and say, "Hey, I'm not happy with you know it's sort of a sham on the non-defense side, and and you're still shortchanging defense." And and he was upset from that angle. So we are going to see some pushback here. Um, how how do you think it plays out in the Senate at this point? Any any read from either of you on uh, where where it stands? Well, I I, I mean I think that um, you know I I I don't know what share of Republicans are going to vote for it. Um, I mean, certainly the Republicans are going to vote against it, some, some of them. Um, but I mean, I think, I think we can assume there will be enough Republicans and Democrats voting for this to get, to get past 60 in the Senate. 
some Democrats, obviously, especially those Democrats more toward the left, uh, you know, will likely oppose this. Aiden, is that your take, too? I think that's a, a fair take. I do think it gets to 60, though, when you look at both parties uh, coming coming together for this for this bill. So the, the House, in my opinion, is more interesting to watch than the Senate. But I do expect it to pass both chambers after, as you pointed out, uh, a lot of belly aching. To kind of touch back on something I was mentioning earlier on it being a good appropriation deal for Republicans, the adjustments are important to point out. It's not as good of a deal for Republicans as Kevin McCarthy is claiming, but that's that's normal when when it comes to a deal like this. Both sides are going to try to hype up what they see as wins uh, on their side. It is only two years of caps. That was a huge point of contention during the negotiations. I know it lays out six years, but those are optional, and a new Congress will do whatever it sees fit after the 2024 election where, you know, of course there could be, yeah, it's a presidential election as well as, as uh, congressional. So we'll have to wait and see what happens in fiscal year 2026. But yeah, that's another, that's another good point. If you read the bill, there are six years of, of discretionary spending limits listed in the bill, but only two of those years are actually enforceable with these automatic cuts that would come if you exceed the cap. Uh, the rest is sort of the other four years of sort of window dressing here, and, and a future Congress can easily um, write whatever new limit they want. You know, one Congress can't bind a future Congress anyway, so um, it's really only the two years that are that are at issue. Um, so that is a good point. And I, in terms of the Senate approval, I would note that that another good sign for Senate approval here is Mitch McConnell right out of the gate over the weekend issued a strong statement of support for this bill. So, you know, he he is the Republican leader in the Senate. He's going to carry most of his caucus with him, I have to think. Um, th- that's a clear sign that, that uh, they want this to pass. There will be a few conservative critics in the Senate who, who, who are going to hold it up and not allow for speedy approval. They can do that. We know they can certainly slow it down, which is why we're probably going to be working through the weekend as the Senate votes on this thing before they get a chance to vote. It's going to be yet another weekend. <laughs> but um, but short of slowing it down, it doesn't seem as though they could block it. I mean, if if McConnell's on board, I, I have to think most Republicans are on board. Chuck Schumer, the Democratic majority leader, I don't believe Aiden has actually said, has actually given a formal endorsement yet, but there's no doubt he's going to support this. But the president's behind it. I don't know what he's quite waiting for, but um, most of his caucus, I would think, would follow suit as well. Uh, even if there's going to be some grumblings on the left um, about this bill, so it does seem like you're right. I think we'll be waiting a while for the Senate to get this done, but. Other than the time factor, and of course, the time factor matters, we should say, because June 5th, next Monday, is the supposed deadline here that the Treasury Secretary warned they need the debt limit lifted by then, or she'll have, she'll have to start delaying payments that are, that are owed. So time is of the essence, and, and the Senate's going to be under the crunch to get it done, which is why I think they'll be working through the weekend to vote on it. But it does seem like the key fight is in the House, and and if it if as long as it succeeds there, the Senate can rubber stamp it in due time. Big test for the Speaker, right? Um, 
This is the biggest, you know, he's only been speaker since January. It took him 15 votes in the House to get himself elected speaker. He has the the narrowest of margins, like four seats that he can spare, uh, four votes he can spare among his side. So he's a, a pretty weak speaker. And this is the biggest thing he's tried to do so far. This is his biggest test. It's probably the biggest, most important piece of legislation they do all year. If it doesn't pass the House, it would be a real blow to his leadership, I think it's fair to say, because this is the deal he cut with the president. And if he can't bring enough of his Republicans on board to pass it, I would think he'd be in trouble. And Aiden, I think the question also is, in order to become Speaker, he allowed for this rule where any single member of the House can force a vote to oust him. It, it only would take one member to force that vote. Now, it doesn't mean they'd win the vote, but it would it would be an embarrassment if they even had to vote on ousting him. If enough of these hardcore conservative Freedom Caucus guys are ticked off enough by this bill, the question is, would any of them try to actually oust the speaker? We, we haven't heard talk of any of that yet, right? You're right. We are waiting on a press conference from the House Freedom Caucus coming up today. So maybe there'll be additional information there. But uh, we have not heard that yet. It's something to keep an eye on. And we will see how it goes. I mean, I do think that McCarthy and Jeffries working together will be able to get the votes needed to pass this on a bipartisan, uh, in a bipartisan way. I, I think that they'll have some breathing room as well with dem- a lot of Democrats jumping on board to support this. But it is something we'll have to wait and see. It's not exactly clear at this point how this vote will shake out. But I do think it will pass the House with a margin comfortable enough that uh, no one is too, too nervous tomorrow night. Back to the Senate for a quick second, though. Yeah. I am interested to watch on the Republican side if a majority of Republicans actually do back this bill. I think when you come when you look at the omnibus from last year, there's kind of a coalition of Republican senators who are willing to play ball and help pass things. I wonder if it'll be those folks who are backing this as well, or if it will be a wider range of the GOP conference in the in the Senate where it's just kind of the most conservative members who do not get on board. So I think there's a wide, like a range of Republicans near the Senate, like near the the heart of the Republican GOP conference in the Senate, if they're going to get on board for this. I think they will. I think that this is a deal that they will be content with, especially since they have, you know, McConnell has given McCarthy such a, uh, you know, he's left it to McCarthy to negotiate this, but that's something I'm going to be keeping an eye on when when it comes over to the Senate. Is is this a, is it, does this deal get 15, 20 Republicans or does it get 30 plus? If we could just go back to McCarthy for a second, I mean I think it bears noting that you know we did a lot of reporting in previous months ahead of this, and you know most Democrats did not think that McCarthy was going to be able to get a bill out of the House, and he did. Right, that's a good point. Yeah. He get a get the bill passed that he did pass last month. Yeah, he was able to assemble a Republican bill that passed with only Republican votes just a month ago, uh, and Democrats were betting that the, that he wouldn't be able to do that because of too much division within within his caucus, and they gambled wrong on that. And, and McCarthy did pass a bill last month with only Republican votes. Which is what triggered, I think, these new negotiations that, that that got this bipartisan deal done. 
because Biden right. had Biden had been saying he would not negotiate over the debt limit, but in fact, that's what he ended up doing here to get a bill. Right, and and the other thing too is that you know we in the past you know we compared you know the go go back to twenty eleven that debt limit deal with Boehner and Obama, where they they you know they established the ten years of caps, and you know we, we talked to a lot of people you know, harking back to that deal. And, you know, basically what really most people thought was that now is a very different time from 2011 for various reasons. And that, you know, what, what was, what happened in 2011, very unlikely they would be able to do something like that again. Well, obviously this is not 10 years of caps, but it's two years of enforceable caps and then several more years of unenforceable caps, targets, appropriations, targets, Plus, you know, um, you know, repealing some of this, you know, this COVID aid and so on. So, you know, actually that that from a Republican perspective, that is an accomplishment that a lot of people did not expect. So, I mean, I think there may be a reassessment of McCarthy going forward from some people. Okay, good point. And there is talk. during this whole process, there's been talk of, of, you know, having to go through this debt limit drama yet again, where the, we're really the only country in the world that does it this way, that has a debt limit that requires, I think Denmark sort of does, but it's not a big deal uh, there. We're really the only country that goes through this fiscal crisis atmosphere of raising a debt limit. Um, there was talk during these negotiations of of finally breaking away from it and letting the president uh, invoke the Fourteenth Amendment to the Constitution and and just you know which says in part that the validity of the public debt shouldn't be questioned, therefore giving him the executive authority to um, to just raise it on his own when needed. Um, that was sure to trigger a lengthy court battle, which is why. I th- Biden didn't want to opt for that route because it would have triggered a real crisis as the as the courts challenged it. But he didn't like he didn't want to rule out the possibility. It sounded like he still wanted to test that thing. Do you think we're ever going to get away from these debt limit battles? No, for either of you. <laughs> no, not not in the I think, I think We're going to keep seeing these over and over again until the only if there are if there's somehow sixty Senate Democrats or. Uh, 50 Senate Democrats who are willing to buck the filibuster in a Democratic House. That's the only situation in which I could see the debt limit being cast aside. Or if there's a future president who is uh, bold, maybe the ward. Some other other folks might choose a different ward to try to take the 14th Amendment route and uh, wrestle us out in court. But I I do think that we're going to continue to see the debt limit you know, be a source of negotiations between, you know, whatever, whoever's in power. I am not making any Christmas plans for 2024 because I expect the lame duck to be rather busy with the, uh, the debt limit running out in July, uh, June 1, 2025. So I think that... Uh, January 1, yeah. January 1, sorry, yeah. So I expect us to... But uh, there'll be, but then the Treasury can use extraordinary measures for a few months. So, so probably... Probably the the so-called doomsday X date would be pushed back out to the spring of 2025. I'm guessing maybe, uh, so we well, might have a little be- more time. But basically, okay. basically, so, so I, won't make any, I, won't, I won't make any Easter plans. I'll, I'll keep yeah. my Christmas plans. 
Paul, do you agree? You think the debt limit's here to stay for now? Yes, agree. Yeah. One thing we know about the debt limit is it hasn't done much to actually contain the debt, but um, but I don't think it's something they're ready to part with. So here we are, and we'll be back to it, but that's all the time we have for today. Uh, we'll be following all of the votes this week very closely. You can follow all of our coverage at cq.com or rollcall.com. And if you like what you hear here, you should subscribe to the CQ Budget newsletter. It hits your inbox every day when Congress is in session. You can find that at cq.com. Thanks again to Paul Krozak and Aidan Quigley for joining me. Thanks, guys. Thank you, David. And thank you all for listening. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker. We'll see you next time.